Um, thanks for um, 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 coming along. I think this is actually this is actually like quite a a a, a fun paper for, for for me to do because it, because it's my sort of almost my sort of um, geeky interest, and I don't always get asked just to sort of talk about Borgia. So I was really um, excited with with um, the invitation, and so really sort of what I want to do today is just to sort of. Um, outline his main uh, thinking tools, uh, some of the more reasonable um, critiques um, uh, against Borgia, and then sort of talk about how his work has been used within HG and sort of the, the issues going forward in terms of um, uh, widening access. What I thought would be sort of helpful, first of all, is just to just to sort of um, explain certainly how sociologists would um, account. For the idea, for the sort of um, central role that uh, universities now have, really within uh, the um, economy, and so if we, if we, if you think, if you sort of, I'm like starting with um, uh, Daniel Bell's work in 1973 when he wrote a fairly as substantial text uh, called uh, the coming up. Of post-industrialization, and really, what uh, Bell was doing in this text was trying to uh, explain the 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 and like shifts away from a sort of um, um, a heavy industry, uh, one based very much in terms of um, manufacturing, and the the, the sort of like changes in, in the economy and in industries in the 1970s and 1980s. And so Bell really um, highlighted how we're moving away from um, from heavy industries into a um, knowledge-based economy and a um, service-based economy. And so it was really from like that sort of period then, knowledge and skills and intellect was actually seen as something which which was um, uh, central to the um, economy. And so therefore the actual the university sort of shifted away from being this place where very few people went for very like, specialist skills to something where people now had to somewhere where people now had to go to in order to to become um, employable, and this was sort of um, in parallel with the uh, emergence of um, the human capital theory. And really, what the human capital theory, just in a nutshell, is saying: uh, if you invest in yourself, then you can essentially um, exchange that um, investment for something else. You are the actual capital. So if you invest, for example, in um, university fees, go to university, get your degree, you can then basically exchange that for um, uh, increased life chances, um, better jobs and so on. And so Schutz, who was one of the key um, authors within the human capital school, uh, argued that um, knowledge is our most powerful engine of um, um, production. And because access to education and so on um, was increasingly open to people. Uh, the Human Capital School also thought that uh, because the actual um, the economy was not based on skills, some of the older inequalities such as social class and gender would actually crumble away in the face of a meritocracy, right? So some, some tiny problems there with, with that idea. But this is also um, uh, a narrative within what we call um, um, late modernity, which is a sort of follow-on theory. One of the issues with late modernity in terms of education policy, especially, is one of the key theorists in late modernity was 
Anthony Giddens, who was one of the key, who was one of the key architects of the New Labour um, project. So you can actually see these theories have been very much woven into the um, uh, New Labour narrative of um, of education, education, um, education. And so it was sort of these were the kind of arguments that were that were that were going on. And so if you look at some of the, the um, educational policies or some of the, the educational reports really starting from Deere, from um, the Robbins report right up to the Brown report, there is a very clear human capital narrative within all of those reports in terms of if you want to, if you want people to be mobile, get them into education. And also some of the like, social um, mobility um, uh, policies as well, so the um, opening doors, um, breaking barriers uh, policy from Nick Clegg with one of the most awful titles I think I've ever heard in my life. But again, it was the central message was if you want to be mobile, get educated, right? And so again, it's all very much this human capital narrative. So what we use to try and critique the human capital narrative is Borget. And so uh, um, there he is there, one of his um, pensive poses, which he's very famous for. And so really what Borges' theory was about was to try and actually question the freedom of individuals, how much agency they have, which is what we would say in sociology. So how much choice do they have, what sort of and like structures or barriers are actually still in place for them. And so his... Um, a uh, theoretical project can be described as um, structural um, um, constructivism. Every time I say that phrase in my lectures, there's this sort of low, low sort of like groan throughout the actual theatre of you know um, what could that possibly mean, Kieran? And so it's essentially a two-part idea of where things are structured, but also people also make things, so people also construct things. So it's a sort of two-part theory of where you are limited with structures, but you're not then actually just, just um, like stuck where you are. You do also have some sort of role or voice or choice within the actual process. But it's that, it's, it's that actual balance, okay? And so it's, it's sort of trying to see how much um, like structure over how, um, over how much choice. And so, uh, again, Borgia was never trying to say it's 50-50 because that's actually just not going to move anyone anywhere. So it was more about where is the actual balance. And so, um, and in, in terms again of, of sociology, he, he was very much rooted within the tradition from C. Wright Mills, who wrote probably the most um, important sociological book probably ever uh, in um, 1959, where Mills says the sort of main task of sociology is to think about uh, issues, events, inequalities as both as both personal troubles, but also social issues. So for example, you could say the um, like trouble of getting into university, the like individual trouble, but the social issue of a social class group being largely uh, missing from certain universities. So you can't understand the personal trouble without understanding the actual wider social issues, and you can't understand the social issues without looking at the actual individual troubles and seeing actually what were individual people's stories and how does that relate in terms of them actually trying to think of larger um, social structure changes. And so 
So coming from from Mills, uh, um, Bourdieu was also trying to to look at both the individual troubles, but then also the um, social issues. Now, in order to help us do this, uh, Bourdieu has thinking tools. He's very, very clear on this idea of thinking tools because they're meant to be used, as we have some um, lovely examples uh, later on today. But so it's not just do uh, it's not just a, a process of use these tools the way they've been used before. Apply them, stretch them, see where you can take them. So they're 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 thinking tools. They're meant to be um, heuristic devices. And so his three main thinking tools were then uh, habitus, capital, and fame, which I'll go into um, more detail in a minute. But um, uh, Borges is famous for being the most difficult author to read. I've read. Uh, I've read sentences which have spanned three pages. I've just begged for a full stop so I can go back to the start and reread the actual sentence. So there's this lovely and very, very odd for Bourdieu, because it's very nice and simple, um, 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 the equation of practice, where essentially it's um, um, the, the habitus times capital plus field equals practice. And again, sort of what that actual um, equation does is it tries to illustrate how all three of these thinking tools are equal and have to be thought of all together. So it's not that you can just look at the habitus and nothing else, or, or just look at capital. It's a package deal. So you must look at them all together. And the reason why we actually use theory, other than I just like having a job, one of the reasons why we use theory is that um, uh, social scientists especially are trying to conduct some kind of um, objective social science in an arena that they're also a part of. So they've, 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 they've already come through maybe 30, 40 years of experiencing something. They have a, a lot of preconceptions, common sense understandings, um, um, experiences. And so they need to try and break away from that and actually um, conduct um, um, objective social science. And so Bourdieu uh, and many other theorists argue that we use social theory to basically give us that, that, that sort of push away. It sort of forces us to ask questions with a slightly different language, for example. It, it sort of forces us out of our everyday understanding. It basically kicks us out of it. And so it's probably more important for someone like a sociologist because we are actually usually um, researching either uh, a place or an institution that we have experience of, or at least some sort of theme, such as I mean, class or gender, or age or uh, disability. And so we always, so in, in order to, to, to try and have that, that, that sort of break or that um, jolt, we use social theory, okay? Um, and I, I always tell um, that all my undergraduates, sorry, you must use social theory. There is no way sort of out of it for um, the uh, sociologists. Now, in terms of the actual thinking tools, habitus is the most famous, right? It's the one that, like, most people would talk more about. And certainly, Diane Ray, who uh, is one of the leading Borgesians uh, in the UK, she um, and many others argue that there's really this um, um, overuse um, of the habitus to, to the actual detriment of Borgia and really ignoring some of the other key um, um, concepts. But at the same time, it is one, one, of, the, one of the most like, celebrated uh, thinking tools uh, 
um, fit, fit within sociology today. And so habitus can essentially be described as norms and values and dispositions or predispositions. And it's sort of a sense of being or a sense of not being or a sense of not um, 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 belonging, essentially. And so uh, um, there's very much a sense of a habitus that will either fit somewhere or it won't. So certain places, institutions, situations, relationships, there will be a habitus fit or friction between the sort of norms and values that you come with into a situation which either will welcome them in or that will actually basically punish you for not having <coughs> the right kind of habitus, which we'll come back to later on when, when we're talking about higher education. And so in terms of the, um, the source of the habitus or where habitus comes from or the formation of it, Borges says, and this is actually in order, it comes first of all from the family and from the school. And so in the early years, your sort of, your sort of central uh, aspects of uh, habitus come from family and from school. And then later on, they come from friends and environment. However, because your early habitus is formed by family and school, your actual orientation towards certain friends and towards certain environments will already be directed by the early habitus. So in a sense, uh, it's unlikely that, that you will experience uh, environments completely contrary from your family or from your school because you already have some of these ideas of where you belong or, or um, how to fit in. And so even at that like very, very, very early stage, uh, and we're talking like five and six year olds, um, it's already fairly well established. And there's some really fascinating research done by um, Professor Paul Connolly from Queen's University Belfast on five and six year olds and um, the habitus. And he, he, he actually illustrates um, fairly clearly that there is a fairly clear um, illustration of differences in terms of social class uh, and um, the habitus of um, five and six-year-olds. So it, it really is very, very, very early on. Now, in terms of then uh, capitals, again, this is Borgia. Someone once called Borgia a Marxist. Really, really, really annoying. So um, he was trying to get away from this sort of idea of social class um, and uh, resources are only based on capital and based on money. So he tried to flesh out ideas of capital. So he, his three main forms of capital were um, economic capital, which is essentially the uh, money in your pocket or uh, your, your, your savings or your access to you know, real estate or stocks and bonds and sort of things like that. Uh, social capital is then um, your social networks. Um, and um, who you know, but also um, how you actually use that. So it's not just enough, for, for example, to have um, a friend who can get you a job. It's what job was that? So it's not just, so if you have a friend who can get you a part-time job in a supermarket or can, can get you entry job in a law firm, the, the, the <coughs> law firm's capital is higher. So it's not just about um, having it, it's also about where does that actually get you. And then cultural capital, which is the most um, difficult to describe and certainly to measure kind of capital, is essentially um, um, the cultural competence. Okay, so um, how you 
negotiate space and so on. So, and there's uh, three subcategories of cultural capital. I promise there are no more sub-subcategories of any of the um, Borgesian tools. But um, 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 embodied ca uh, cultural capital is around essentially your body and how you actually um, um, present yourself and how you basically hold your body and to try and um, illustrate uh, levels of um, um, cultural competency. Uh, um, objective capital is using artifacts to try and illustrate some level of culture. I don't know if it's the, the same in England, but certainly in Ireland, if you want to illustrate um, objective cultural capital, it's having a copy of Ulysses on your coffee table. <laughs> it's a big old thick book that no one's ever going to read, but it makes you look really, really clever. I don't know the same here or if there's something sort of uh, comparable, but it's that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's basically using artifacts to, to try and um, demonstrate uh, uh, culture. And then um, institutional cultural capital comes from institutions which are essentially bestowed on you. So going to an um, elite university, being a member of an elite club, for example, so it's actually getting some, some uh, level of cultural capital via institutions. And um, the, the, the reason why we have capitals, or what capitals do, they first of all illustrate the actual transactional nature of resources. So it's the idea that just the way I went to a shop and gave someone a pound for the bottle of water, I can essentially do the same with my contacts, or I can do the same with my cultural um, approach to something, or my um, um, my cultural competency. So it's it's a um, transactional arrangement, and it it gets bored you out of that messy Marxist label. Um, it also helps plot uh, your um, position in social space. Essentially, it helps figure out your social class um, identity. So certainly, some of the work by Mike Savage down the road at the LSC, looking at the um, Great British Class Survey, uh, took um, the three different levels of uh, capitals to sort of try and figure out the new model of um, social class uh, in the UK. And probably one of the one of the most important things that it that it does is it also gives us the actual language for what we call in sociology um, um, the, the cultural class um, analysis. Essentially. It helped social class researchers still talk about social class, okay? Because there is this sort of uh, wider argument that you know is actually a social class dead, or you know is is a social class really still a thing? And so certainly, for people such as um, Ulrich Beck, he would say definitely not. Um, so Beck, for 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 those of you who who, who don't know him, he was. Uh, a sociologist in the LSE actually, though it three years ago, and um, Beck's sort of main argument was that we now live in a fairly classless society. He, he categorised it as we now live in a um, uh, it's um, um, capitalism without the class. So in terms of we actually don't we we, we don't live in a society anymore which can be characterized by the old-fashioned um, um, social class uh, markers because of things such as um, welfare state, because we have free, uh, free health um, education and legal representation, the sort of older inequalities that would be linked to, 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 to social class are actually taken care of by the... Um, um, by the um, 
that the welfare state up for debate. <coughs> I, um, th th I grant you. But Beck's sort of main, main, main sort of term for this is social class is a zombie category. It's basically dead but kept alive by people like me who like to talk about social class. And so he says, for, for all intents and purposes, it's gone. And it, it's just been kept going by some sociologists who got a job on social class and can't change. Things like that. Thanks, Ibrahim. Right? But we then, to sort of counter back using uh, Bourdieu, we would argue that rather than it, than it, than it being uh, a zombie category, it's something closer to Frankenstein's monster, where it's a sort of hodgepodge uh, concept, right? So Beck's um, argument that social class is dead is based on economic capital, and that's it. Where using Bourdieu, we actually think about um, uh, social class as being economic, social, and also cultural capital. And then taking Bourdieu forward by some of the cultural class analysts, such as um, uh, Bez Skeggs and um, Diane Ray, is then also to see how social class works when it's being intersected by things such as um, race and ethnicity and also gender. And so Bourdieu gives us some of the actual language and some of the thinking tools to actually rethink the role of social class or the actual presence of social class beyond just economics. Because one of Beck's arguments against social class is because things can actually change so much, because you can be quite wealthy, lose it all, make it all back, lose it all, or vice versa, because our lives shift so fast, having these, these um, uh, rigid um, markers don't actually count. Which, you could take that point, but that's only in terms of money. It's not in terms of, you know, um, the, the, the cultural aspects of class or the social aspects. So what Borgia does is it helps us actually retain um, our arguments about the actual um, importance of social class, essentially. Uh, and then finally, field, which to a large extent can be seen as the actual social context for habitus and capital to um, interact. But probably the most geekiest point I will make today is Borgia's uh, choice of the word field in French and how it was not translated properly into English. So Borgia's French is the champ, which means battlefield. Well, we just talk about faith. So faith could be like, you know, where you take your kids to play football. But you probably wouldn't take them to a battlefield, right? Um, so it is an actual site of uh, competition, of um, aggression, of winners and losers as well. And so it, it's a site in which people do actually have to actually navigate. And so fields um, have rules and they have uh, requirements. And so a certain habitus, a certain combination of habitus and capital might work in one field, but actually not somewhere else. Also, fields also change. So it's, it's what uh, um, Borgia calls the, um, 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 the, the, the hysteresis of habitus, essentially, where the field changes and then we have to catch up. So something such as the, the contraction in the, um, the, um, the graduate labor market is a massive change in the field. We have to now catch up and figure out how are we going to um, readdress um, um, uh, the graduates um, not getting jobs, for example. Um, certainly, there'll be quite a lot of hysteresis post-Brexit as well and things like that. So the, the actual massive change is um, uh, in the field. Now, in terms of practice, because it, it's, it's always something which we talk about, but it's never 
sometimes it's not actually clear what we mean. So if we return to, to Borges' lovely um, equation, which is such a nice and a clear uh, idea, in terms of what Borges means by practice, first of all it means negotiating fields, okay? So actually working your way through the fields. Uh, and these fields are usually characterized by blurred boundaries, or, or what Borges would call fuzzy boundaries, okay? Uh, and also tacit rules and tacit mechanisms. Essentially, um, uh, fields or um, areas of social life where uh, there are rules, but they're not actually said anywhere. It's just that you just have to actually know um, um, how to get on in those fields. You have to know how to actually navigate them. But they're actually very blurred or very fuzzy. So it's not always clear who do you go to to ask for information or what's the best way of actually trying to get into a university course or into an internship or into a job. And so, but uh, you're actually rewarded if you can just figure that out nearly, nearly um, on your own. And so um, it comes back to the actual habits. So if you have those sort of norms and values and dispositions from family and from school, you can actually um, negotiate that far easier than if you're, for example, first generation going to um, uh, the university, for example. So it's like, it's uh, those kind of things. And really, what it's known as in the um, Borgesian uh, school is um, ability to actually play the game, to, to basically go in, figure out what's going on and win. Okay, so, you know, can you actually play the game? And it's, it's turned both um, practical mastery and also symbolic mastery, which is really just our terms for um, the, the like, practical mastery is basically doing it, is ba it, it, it's actually going out and, uh, and actually playing the game. The symbolic mastery is by thinking about it and sort of making all of your plans and so on. So again, it's a sort of like two, two part process. It's also uh, practices a and, like, sense of um, uh, belonging and a really, really uh, important one for HE is um, expectations over aspirations. So I, I don't think anyone in this room would say that students don't have aspirations, but they also don't always expect to meet those aspirations. Yeah? So it's the sort of the what's possible over what's probable issue as well. And so there's, there's some really interesting, interesting work from um, uh, Trevor Gale up in um, uh, Glasgow University, where uh, he's only talking about how really it, it's not aspirations, but it's it's when it comes to the expectations. And there's this really famous line from Bourdieu, where uh, he says, uh, for many of the working class uh, respondents in one of his studies, it was really an attitude of um, that's not for the likes of me. That's a very famous uh, quote from uh, uh, Bourdieu. So it's not that that like people don't want to, to do these things, but it's more that they sort of don't feel that they can't. And there's almost a sort of self-exclusion, or uh, they either they um, exclude themselves or they actually don't um, go to the actual next stage. Now, in terms of some of the critiques, there's loads and loads of critiques on Borgia. Some of them are ridiculous, like he's too difficult to read, or he's French. <laughs> um, so I don't want to talk about those. But Richard Jenkins does make some fairly good points, um, as much as I don't like to always uh, admit that. And so uh, Richard Jenkins wrote this very famous book, um, 
on how bad um, uh, Bourdieu is essentially, where he he calls Bourdieu um, a failure. And he says that the main reason why it's a failure is because there's far too much structure and no agency. There's far, far, far too much um, lack of choice, regulation from the habitus. You know, everything's from the family and from school and people can't think um, outside of uh, their habitus. And it's just far too much. He, he doesn't give anywhere near enough space in terms of actual uh, individuals and agency, which is a fair enough argument. However, Borgia responds to this argument saying that habitus can change, but it's just really, really unlikely. Okay, and this is, I think, where some of your framework comes in with the um, the uh, section on um, uh, habitus, where um, if you can get someone into an environment which is so different from their own, and it's such a a I mean, powerful or uh, positive experience, maybe as well, you can actually not break the habitus, but just reform it or sort of send it off in a different direction. So you can have what I've called is um, um, out of environment, um, out of environment um, experiences, which can actually recalibrate like, almost and sort of give someone's habitus slightly different norms or values or slightly different expectations and so on. So, but for 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 Jay, he just says that it's really, really, really unlikely. But he was writing this in the 1970s and 80s, where there wasn't no, there, there was nowhere near the sort of. Uh, work that, that there is now in, in terms of, of, of like, social justice within education and the sort of very like, strong work in terms of uh, widening access. And also, while the habitus may be too rigid, Jenkins, uh, uh, capital isn't. So you can actually change levels of capital maybe easier than you can habitus. And because both are as equally important, so changing someone's social capital in terms of extending their actual networks, for example, might be easier and more effective than always focusing on the habits. Okay. Now, what I want to do briefly uh, is just talk a little bit about Borgia and higher education. Is, is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So within uh, Borgia's work, um, uh, the habits and the capital play uh, a central role in uh, HE across many different uh, factors in terms of both pathways um, and choices. And really uh, what uh, Borgia describes the habitus as is a self-denying um, ethos. So in terms of, again, that it's, it's not for the likes of me, about the sort of self-exclusion, self-regulation, or, or um, opting out of various things. And so some of the work from Diane Ray from 2005 uh, has illustrated how uh, in terms of um, uh, accessing higher education or moving into uh, HE, uh, habitus affects whether um, if a student actually reads for a degree, um, where they read for the degree, and also what they're 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 going to study. Okay, so in terms of you know all of the sort of various uh, aspects of um, uh, um, accessing HE. Also, in terms of the way or the role that. Um, um, that cultural competency plays in terms of actually accessing HE as well. I think um, it's really important. So there's some uh, fairly recent studies. So there's uh, Steve Jones, um, my own work, and then also um, um, uh, Tamsin Bowers-Brown work as well. But just to focus on Steve's work, which I think is some of the most original work I've read 
in the past like 10, 15 years on using Borgia and looking at access to HG, where Steve, uh, he's in Manchester University, Steve did an analysis of the personal <coughs> statement within the UCAS application. He's a linguist turned Borgesian, so he, he's able to, to do some sort of like neat stuff that, that sort of most like sociologists just don't have depth of background for. And so uh, controlling for um, academic uh, ability or uh, qualifications, he found that there were very clear class disparities around the actual ways in which these statements were written, in terms of the actual sentence structure, in terms of the actual grammar that was used, in terms of the like, length of the sentences, in terms of the number of like, syllables in the words, in terms of how things were um, expressed as well. So in terms of how students use this essay to try and demonstrate their, um, their cultural competence and how they would belong in a certain university. So he was looking at um, um, elite, uh, um, he was looking at uh, applications to more um, um, elite universities. But also in the statement, he, he also found that there was a fairly unclassed um, difference in terms of how people sold what they had done. So from um, working class applicants, they, they would just say how they had worked in a shop, where the middle class applicants, it was temporary supervisor. And it was things like that. And they had, you know, they were, they were a key holder on Saturday mornings, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's those, again, playing the game. It's the anacassate rules of, if you say this, it might actually get you over the, the uh, line that uh, slightly that bit easier. So it's about how people actually uh, express themselves in terms of something like the uh, UCAS essay. And then also in terms of navigating uh, HE. So when they're in HE as well, which is something which is always, it, is really, really important in terms of widening access. Uh, first of all, Diane Ray <coughs> found that there was a a class tendency to focus far too much on the academics. Now, I know as a lecturer, I meant to, to always tell my students, do your homework. But at the same time, there is far much, there, there is far more to a degree than your um, um, uh, classification. It's those social networks that you actually make along the way. It's the experience in the extracurricular activities and so on. So when she was looking at, again, this was uh, working class and middle class students in an elite uh, university, the working class students focused all of their attention on their studies and didn't join any clubs, didn't want any contacts, because they were, again, focusing a lot more on this human capital narrative of, if I get a first, I'll be really employable. But really, if you go to like an Oxbridge university, if you get a first, or if you get two, one, plus that, that black book of numbers, that's a lot more important than that first. So, or as argues uh, Diane Reg. So there is a sort of I mean, class issue around, again, how to, to play the game in university as well. And some of the work from um, Amory Bathmaker, looking again at how a lot of working class uh, uh, um, uh, university students uh, wouldn't do any of the extracurricular activities because they were again focused very much in terms of actually just getting uh, the grades. And then some of, the, of my own work which has uh, tried to sort of highlight the like, friction between working class identity and university life. So this is a uh, 
um, that, that respondent called Maeve, and she says they, she means her classmates, were nice enough and we went for lunch every day after class, but just not really, didn't really click with them, uh, just quite different, but, but I love the subject that I was studying then, working in the union, um, that was my social life. The friends I had, I made in school are still my friends now and are very similar to myself. So there was very much this, this sort of friction between university life or meeting new people and sort of having these out of environment experiences or extending peer groups to sort of reformulate re uh, the habitus. It really wasn't there for um, a lot of the uh, working class students um, 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 in my own sample. And so it was very much about how the long-standing habitus and the, the long-standing sense of belonging wasn't really there in terms of university. So the working class students in my, in, in my own study uh, were there for, for the degree and nothing else, which is a problem in terms of uh, what happens afterwards. Because certainly I would argue that widening access should be measured on where they go when they leave university, uh, or, cert or certainly uh, part of it. Now, in terms, just in terms of where I think we need to, to sort of think about in terms of uh, widening access. Um, not only does the education system suffer in terms of the habitus and capital, it also formulates it. It also has a pretty central role in the actual social reproduction. And so uh, Borgia gives a fairly coherent list of some of the ways in which the uh, uh, school system actually reproduces identities or reproduces habitus or keeps what he calls the uh, um, dominated groups down and the dominant groups um, um, uh, enjoying where they are and uh, um, enjoying their sort of uh, effortless move through uh, social space. And so it's in terms of um, architecture of the actual buildings, the uh, language in the classroom, both the uh, um, um, uh, um, the, the, the curriculum content and also the extracurriculum content, the um, uh, equal opportunities narrative of everyone should just sit this exam at the same time with the same level of support and you'll just do well if you're clever. Sort of this sort of uh, this sort of approach, and then also this the sort of uh, tacit rewarding of cultural competency as well. So you know the MX students who can say things in, in the right way do actually get uh, rewarded more, which is this, this, this sort of idea around um, 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 cultural competency. And so I suppose what we have to ask ourselves um, is really um, how do these uh, mechanisms play out in terms of accessing higher education? So you know how have some of the ways in which the school reproduces identity, how does that actually make a barrier maybe for accessing HE? And then also, do these things happen in the lecture theater the same way that they happen in the, the actual uh, primary and secondary classrooms, I think is a, a key issue. And so um, the sort of main issue within the education system is that it does reward an ability to follow rules that aren't written down. It's it's, it's rules which have been learned over time from the family and from other education institutions and from peers and from environment. And so uh, we have to try and actually figure out some way of trying to readdress that through, really sort of through Bourdieu. But Bourdieu gives us the actual, I think, the actual tools to, to do it. And he, he sort of highlights that um, 
you know, access that doesn't equal success. Um, he, he sort of uh, illustrates how the, the sort of various different forms um, of capital sort of need <laughs> to be thought of as a um, um, uh, a, a combined effort. And so really, what uh, um, Borgia again sort of wants to sort of r r remind his audience is first of all that we can't just give um, authority to the, the education system without actually um, constantly questioning it. So actually sort of always asking what, you know, what are you actually doing rather than just sort of giving them a sort of free run. Uh, against focusing on anecdotal evidence of mobility, nearly every time I give a Bourdieu paper at a conference, there's someone says, I used to be uh, a, a truck driver and now I'm a lecturer. Bourdieu's just been proven wrong. I'm like, brilliant, but don't bring an anecdote to a data fight, okay? You have to actually look at the, you know, hundreds of studies that will actually illustrate the actual social reproduction. And so anecdotal evidence, even though it might be for you, uh, it's nowhere near enough. Uh, but there is always those anecdotes, which people always bring up, which, you know, I do find slightly irritating at times. And um, <coughs> never celebrating the success of the many, because that's, that's one of the other things within Borgia is he sort of argues that an education system lets in a few, so it looks like everyone can get in if they try. If no one got in, it's a problem. But if a few get in, it's because they work really, really, really hard, right? So again, it's this idea of not celebrating the uh, few getting in um, and forgetting about the men. And then I guess just in terms of some of my own interests uh, in research is once we look at widening access and social justice within, the, within accessing HE and getting through HE, what happens afterwards? But anyway, thanks very much. That's me done.